0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. So let's continue to find the silver lining in the halo of this epidemic.
1: And Tom, normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor.
0: Today's guest is Dr. Michael Parker. He's president of the Catholic Medical Association. He's also systems director for OB obstetrics hospitalists at the Mount Carmel Health Systems hospitals and clinics in the Columbus, Ohio area. Uh, Dr. Parker also likes things beginning with the letter B, babies, which he delivers, bourbon, which he loves to drink, and bagpipes, which he plays incredibly well. Mike, welcome back to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thanks, Tom. You forgot the fourth B, and that's beekeeping. We just oh, uh, my wife's my wife's beekeeping hobby just has been keeping us busy through all this. We just Yes. Just, uh,
0: yes. Good good for you. At least one of you is gainfully employed. So <laughs> Mike, there's a favorite line that you have been saying that I've quoted once or twice, but I want to give you the thunder. What line have you been quoting these last few years that you also think applies to this situation?
2: Well, Tom, the line is there is no better time to be a Catholic physician than right now.
0: And you mean by that?
2: Well, Tom, what I mean by that is, uh, and this may take a little bit long explanation, but let me just quote you something from a book that I've been uh, reading over this, and it's it's The Dear and Glorious Physician by Taylor Caldwell, and it's a story on a novel about St. Luke, and it's this. Medicine has always been associated with the priesthood, for there is more to medicine than the body, and a physician must also treat the souls of his patients. And at the last, he must depend for a cure on the divine physician. And that fits right into what we believe as Catholic physicians when we look at the four key uh, uh, principles of social teaching. And that is human dignity. We see the human body as truly a reflection of Jesus Christ. Two, common good. We're always looking for the common good. I think I mentioned this to you on another phone call. When this all started, what I saw in many doctors was fear. Uh And they were thinking about what can they do to protect themselves? Mm. And what I saw in many of my colleagues from a Catholic perspective was, what can I do for others? What can I do so that we all come out of this in a common good? Three, subsidiarity, and then four, solidarity. So working best at the local level and working to provide what can be provided at the best at the local level uh, really allows us as Catholic physicians who believe and practice these principles within our healthcare system and within medicine to truly bring a new ethos to uh, health care during this time of crisis.
0: And, and Mike, would you say, is there a corollary statement here for our listeners who are not physicians? Is there no better time to be a Catholic than right now?
2: Well, I think, I think so. And that is what we're seeing in response to uh, the COVID crisis and what Catholic physicians are bringing to this. The Catholic Medical Association, almost as soon as this started coming out, started putting out ethical guidelines on how we should be working and behaving within the, the, the crisis, especially with regard to limited resources. I think we can all agree by now we've kind of overestimated what was needed with regards to ventilators and PPE. Uh, thanks be Not to so God. much PPE, but yes, thanks be to God, But but ventilators. And there was a time where there was a discussion about uh, what are we going to do with limited resources uh, with an overwhelming medical situation. And the Catholic Medical Association was very quick to put out ethical guidelines on how to do that. The second was we seeing the patient as more than just a body. In critical situations where spiritual health is important, we started looking for ways that we could have priests come into the hospital and provide the sacraments to those who were in dire straits with their health, either in the ICU units, on ventilators, in their last moments. How could we train young priests who were healthy to come in, provide the last rites and sacraments for these patients? So we weren't looking just for that, uh, just to, you know, have this patient be done and get out of our ICU. We were looking, how can we help them get on to the next life, which was going to be very important to them. And then finally, it's looking out for each other, it's providing that camaraderie uh, that we know as Catholic physicians, providing prayer and support. One of the first things the board did was met in an emergency setting to look at how can we provide support to all of our members within the Catholic Medical Association. And one of the things that we saw that, to be the most important was prayer. And so the board and its members are saying a memorari novena called the quick novena that uh, Mother Teresa uh, uh, used so well. Uh, on a daily basis for all of our members. And, and I think that's really, and, and then finally, I think, you know, be not afraid. We hear that 365 times in the Bible. One of the things that's given me the greatest peace in all of this is just knowing that God has a plan and a direction for all of this for us Catholic physicians and everybody that's in this, that somehow we're gonna find his grace and his glory uh, at the end of all of this and we're gonna come out on the
1: other side better and stronger than we were before so you know mike the to your first point mike i i think in in reflecting it's pretty frightening how quickly we saw society willing to shift into rationing and some of the things that we would fight against and at the same time it gives me great comfort knowing that my catholic medical association immediately stepped into the breach and said that's not what we do. This is how we care for people. But it didn't take long for those forces to begin raising their head, did it?
2: No, it didn't take long at all. And, and uh, you know, I think that goes to, you know, this uh, secular idea of medicine or this materialistic idea or utilitarian view uh, that we have. And, you know, this, this also started to play out when we started talking about vaccines and how these vaccines were being developed. And we quickly put out a press release uh, condemning the use of aborted fetal stem cells for uh, the research into the viruses. And what we found is that probably 8 percent of the companies that were doing uh, vaccine research. We're not using aborted uh, embryo stem cells. Eighty percent, eight zero. Pro- well, Good. the list that we had, it was probably eighty percent. Good. And and so the cry for from from people in the secular community to have the president reverse his uh, executive orders on uh, not allowing the use of aborted embryonic stem cells in research was really not necessary. He he doesn't need to reverse that because. People have turned to alternative sources that are much more ethical and may even be uh, more efficacious in developing the vaccines.
0: Mike, one of the things you mentioned was the memorari Novena, which has been a go-to for me for the last, I don't know how many years, but could you tell people what the memorari Novena is?
2: Well, the Memorare Novena is saying nine memoraries, which we uh, uh, in a row on a daily basis. Mother Teresa added a 10th uh, to it because she never knew how long it was going to take for that response. <laughs> so, by adding 10 every nine days, she got an extra one in. Uh, and, it, and it's basically the, the prayer of the memorari
1: said nine times on a daily basis.
0: Yes, I, I actually prayed mine this morning when I went out for a run. It was a glorious day for that.
1: But you know, while we're reflecting on being Catholic physicians, isn't it funny? It just sort of struck me. Here we have three physicians talking to one another about uh, a medical crisis. And we're talking about prayer uh, and it makes me think of a discussion I had with one of my kids and he said well dad you, you understand you're a scientist and I said you know actually I'm, I'm really not a scientist uh, in my job I use science right. uh, but I was trying to explain the difference between maybe a physician and a scientist and then here we three Catholic physicians are openly and comfortably talking about evoking prayer as one of the tools that we have to fight things like pandemics. I think that's pretty remarkable.
0: And I think it goes, go ahead, Tom. Well, no, I wanted to segue into you giving um, listeners kind of a background on what the Catholic Medical Association is before we talk about some of the specific things our members have been up to during this pandemic.
2: Well. I'm probably going to botch this, Tom, and I and I hate to do it in front of you because you're the you're the main <laughs> author of this. But, you know, our, our mission statement is support, supporting and informing physicians to uh, practice the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and art of medicine. And that may be just an abbreviated uh, uh, statement there, but it's also, you know, our vision statement is um, uh, imitating Jesus Christ, um,
0: inspiring physicians to inspiring imitate physicians Jesus to Christ.
2: Christ, correct, and so. In that respect, we bring that faith and reason we talk about within the Catholic faith that science and and religion are not mutually exclusive to each other. In fact, they go uh, very closely together uh, in helping to heal our patients. And so the Catholic Medical Association, as its main focus, is to help bridge that intersection between faith and medicine and to allow physicians to feel comfortable practicing their faith within their medicine. Uh, John Paul II, in one of his encyclicals, said, you cannot leave your faith at the door when you walk out to go to work. Your faith follows you everywhere you go, because it is inherent in your soul at your baptism that we become priest, prophet, and king. And that goes back to the quote that I, I said before, inherent is we're all priests. And so in that, we are... Uh, responsible for not only the physical well-being of our patients, but the spiritual well-being and their salvation. And so we want to provide them with health care that respects their dignity, but also will not jeopardize their salvation.
0: Mike, the fastest growing part of our membership in the CMA are the medical students. And five weeks ago today, we interviewed four medical students from around the country about how their training had been impacted by COVID. What do you know about the actions of our medical students during these last five weeks?
2: Well, you know, the medical students, I think, are the ones who uh, really are giving us a prime example of what we can do. Uh, We have strong leadership within our student section. uh, Now, Dr. Francesca Ursua um, and her uh, board of Catholic uh, Medical Student Association uh, are putting together a fairly long monthly process uh, of how they can reach out to each other in prayer And also in education, Uh, they're going to be doing a consecration to Jesus through Mary online. They're going to be having online weekly reflections or uh, on the uh, readings that are presented for that in email fashion on a daily basis. It's already been done. But they're also looking at You know, we do the annual boot camp, which is uh, an ethical retreat uh, for the medical students, and that's going to have to be canceled this year they're already looking at how they can do that virtually and come together in that way. And then as they go forward into August, and hopefully as this starts to abate and we're allowed to get together, looking at how they can all come together and celebrate their successes and their faith uh, when this pandemic is over.
0: Mike, something that I've seen a lot in the media that seems to, question my view of reality is that they say we got to get these fourth year medical students graduated early and out there on the front lines (laughs) to help it's like to help where because outside of new york city i've seen hospitals are emptying and the fourth year medical students who are newly graduated are not prepared to go into the breach anyway is that right i mean what are you seeing well they're not they're, they're not they would not have been able to go into
2: the breach that was being presented to them by the early models related to the COVID virus. That would have been way over, too overwhelming, and it, and it probably would have uh, been catastrophic to their education uh, or their orientation. But what do we say every July? Exactly. Don't go to the emergency room. Right. <laughs> You're going to get the intern. He's brand new. And now we want to put them in a situation where they're they're going to be caring for patients who could be critically ill. I think what they were looking at was using these uh, new young doctors to kind of Fill in gaps where other doctors were being pulled away, sure, uh, so they were taking uh, emergency room docs and turning them to ICU docs. Um, they were taking uh, like say high risk obstetricians and turning them into critical care docs. Uh, a number of ways that these medical students could fill the gap. but I do not think it would have been good for our healthcare system overall, but I think that that statement that they were making of getting them out so they can start practicing medicine. One, they have the least experience of anybody possible within the, within the healthcare yes. field. And two, it was a statement of our overreaction to uh, the proposed models of what was going to happen to us with the COVID virus if we did absolutely nothing or minimal. And I think that the, the fear that ran through the, the nation as a whole led us to start saying things and doing things Uh, that when we look back on this retrospectively, we'll see had a detrimental effect.
0: And and a lot of people may not realize that many hospitals are laying off nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and even physicians because there's just not enough for them to do.
1: Yeah, I talked to an OR nurse a couple of days ago, and she said on her last paycheck, she had eight hours of pay. Um, and that's just unheard of. Usually, the OR nurses are overtime working, and I think it's easy in all of the excitement to overlook the fact that, to Tom's point, uh, they're not at capacity. They're well below capacity to the point that it's harming economically a lot of the employees.
2: Yeah, it's here. What we've seen is we've seen almost all of our outpatient facilities and screening facilities have been closed, like screening mammography, uh, and even the so those those centers have been closed. We've seen a number of employees who have been furloughed uh, uh, until another time, or or where we say re re uh, how do we say redirected uh, to other areas of the hospital. But um, they're even a- asking physicians uh, to take voluntary cuts in pay of twenty percent uh, due to the uh, uh, loss of revenue from the hospital systems.
0: That's just unheard of. At least tomorrow in Indiana, our governor has said that medical care can go back to everything that we normally would see before as long as we're practicing safe, safe social distancing. I was very happy to see that. Um,
1: Having said that, there's so much fear. That I think we're groping as we, as we try to return. Everyone is trying to understand how can we just turn the volume up a little without blowing the speakers on the system? Uh, in our hospital, for example, there's only one entrance or two entrances, the very front door and the ER and all of the surgeons, we have to go through the front door and be checked and have our temperature checked and go through a series of sort of, uh, screening procedures, you might say, like TSA, uh, to get in to take care <laughs> of our patients. And none of us, uh, none of us are used to that. That's, uh, that's going to be very strange.
0: Coronavirus, oh, <laughs> could we, could we, um, you know, patent that? <laughs> Get you know, like your TKN
2: TK TK TK. number for that, yeah. it's your, free, your free flight number. You know, the question becomes, what is safe social distancing? Right. You know, uh, there's really no way to know that social distancing, the impact that it's had on, what we say flattening the curve with regards to this, because even though we've been social distancing, people are still getting COVID virus. Let, let, let's, let's think about that for a minute. And Chris and, and Tom, when you walk into that hospital, you're probably like me. I've got to walk in and get my temperature checked. I'm walking through 40 degree weather for about five to 10 minutes and then they're putting it up to my right. temple and taking my temperature. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Um, and then what's been when lost in all of this is the prevalence of the disease in your area, you know, and, and in Ohio, we've been blessed with a very low prevalence rate of the COVID virus. And so opening things back up and safe social distancing, I don't know what that is and, and other measures to try and reduce the infection rate. Uh, you know, I think is is a good thing, but I, I think you also have to go back to why did we do all this in the first place? And that was to flatten the curve so we wouldn't overwhelm the hospital care system. True. Well, what we found is that hospitals may be at thirty five percent of capacity. Mm-hmm. So we've done a great job of, of not overwhelming the system. In fact, we've done a great job of killing the system. Yes. Uh, or, or causing great harm to the system. And so now, and I think it was giving us time to rebuild our supply of required uh, medical uh, supplies, ventilators, N95 masks, uh, robes, everything else that were produced overseas, to get us up to a point where I think when we, if we do go back to fully being able to commune in society that the, the healthcare system in and of itself will not be overwhelmed again.
1: But you know, it's an interesting uh, discussion of you know, um, medical school epidemiology coursework and that prevalence of, of a disease affects everything. And right. Tal and I have talked with multiple guests from all sorts of specialty positions. And this disease is not the same in North Dakota or Indiana right. or Ohio as it is in New York. Right. And we don't seem to... I think when it's all said and done, we'll look back and maybe be self-critical in that we've been unable to treat it that way. Uh, and the right. same would be true for the reopening of the world. Uh, it shouldn't reopen the same way in New York as it does in rural Indiana and Ohio.
2: Right, and you know, probably the I think if we when we start to see more studies that are that are coming out about people who have had asymptomatic carrying and uh, their immunity that we're seeing out of California and New York, we're going to see that there's a lot more people who have been exposed to and developed immunity to this virus in a natural way, so that probably one-fifth of our population is already immune. And so really, we need to focus on those high-risk categories, you know, the elderly, those with chronic uh, uh, diseases or comorbidities, um, and and protecting them, but it, it, for it, it, what? And your show has done a great job of highlighting this: is that for 99% of the people, this is not going to be a fatal illness. But what we've come to equate, like Mario Cuomo has said on, on the, the the news, is that COVID equals death. If you get COVID, you're going to die. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's led to a lot of uh, uh, too, our, yeah. yeah experimentation or whatever. But you know, it's it's scaring. People people into, to, uh, avoiding healthcare.
0: Mike, what have been some of the common concerns you're hearing from around the country from other members of the Catholic Medical Association?
2: Well, you know, first and foremost, Tom, I think it's survival of their practices. Uh, and I, I don't think that's unique to the Catholic Medical Association at all. Um, what we, you know, uh, and how do I survive this? Because, You know, if if you're a Catholic obstetrician like I was, you see a niche population of people, and um, and and that's not as and you're not providing services that may be more lucrative, uh, such as you know sterilizations and and contraception, and so when your practice sees a fifty percent or a seventy five percent drop in daily revenue um that's a significant drop and you know, it's more it may be fatal for some they're going to have to look at other ways of sustaining their revenue or finding revenue um for their families i was my wife and i both sat down and said we're truly blessed that i'm in an employed position even though i'm taking a, a cut in pay i'm blessed that i have a sustainable income for people like you and Chris. Uh, in private practice, you're seeing that effect and where it's affecting you not only from a business perspective, but your your personal financial well-being also. And that's probably the biggest thing we've heard so far.
0: In our interviews, we've talked to a number of people who are helping in different areas of um, in medicine, some helping governmental authorities through public health, hospital systems, their own patients, and the public through various forms of the media. What are some of Um, the initiative you've seen CMA physicians do that you'd like our listeners to know about?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, what you and Chris and and, and Dr. Mulally have been doing has just been outstanding. Uh, I think this has probably been the greatest gift that our organization could have given to our members is the sane, rational uh, information that you're giving to our members On how to proceed during this crisis. I think the second thing that that is out there is my Catholic doctor um, with Kathleen Birchelman and her uh, uh, online um, uh, telemedicine support. Um, she's done a great service. This was already set up and she had so many licenses available that she was able to offer these licenses to physicians for free. And so having, going to telemedicine or or a small donation to her organization, but going to telemedicine on such a short basis, she already had the platform up and running and could get it out to people immediately. So there was that, that, that was taken off of their plate.
0: Okay. So were more physicians able to see patients through her than were two months ago?
2: I'm not I'm not aware of any data or statistics that they have, but I know that she's signed up quite a few physicians oh, uh, good. into her organization uh, based on that.
0: Because we interviewed her about a month ago or so. So since then, I'm sure she's been crazy busy.
2: Well, and, and you know, she's like all of us. She's trying to uh, juggle family and uh, medical practice and a business of My Catholic Doctor. Yes. Uh, and, and, and the Lord is with her and guiding her. Uh, the Holy Spirit is really taking her by the hand and helping her to get through this, I pray. Um, but that's been one of the biggest benefits. And I think finally, you know, just the resources that we've posted on the Catholic Medical Association website, if you go to our resources and look up our, our COVID page, helping our physicians to navigate through the payroll protection program and some of the other relief funding that they can get from the government getting that information and resources out there and available to them, uh, uh, having other resources that they can go to to get quick answers with regards to either government relationships or to uh, how they can survive in their practices has been extremely helpful. And I and think the this, CMA has respond, responded very quickly on this.
1: I would agree. And to that end, I think um, our patients are learning through the media and other Sources that independent medical practices are nothing more than small businesses uh, with payrolls and and employees and families and benefits to try to protect. Uh, And it it has been sobering to see some practices really struggle. And by extension, all of those employees and all those families really struggle. Uh,
0: Are you familiar, Mike, how many practices are you aware of that have gotten the payroll protection program grants?
2: No, I'm I'm not aware of anybody uh, yet. Uh, as you know it, from the news, that program went lost money, it, you know, it went through all the money that was given to it very very quickly, and so many people had applied. I don't, I, I know that uh, may, there may be a couple that have gotten the payroll protection, but I don't
0: know. Many. We got ours a week and a half ago. Then we also got the supplemental Medicare check based on the percentage of Medicare so we got that check and then another program came out Friday and said we're eligible to get a second round of it so it's definitely doable just do it fast and do it right and what we found out really helped us was we had a relationship with a local bank who happened to be my private bank for my family and they just bent over backwards and that's what I'm hearing is that if you have a local bank to go through that is the best way to do it instead of a large national bank
2: well, you're absolutely right. And, and the good news about this is that the government didn't pick a winner bank, right? Um, right. They didn't go to your bank and let them go.
1: You Once know? again, the, the Catholic principle of subsidiarity comes right. through.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> you know, just go to your local bank, fill out the paperwork there. We're going to get the money to you. Yes. I do think it helps to have that relationship um, uh, to that. And, you know, there's so many programs that are coming out, I, I can't even keep track of it. And I've got a brother who's administrating a lot of these uh, uh, programs through the HHS. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think what we're seeing here, it truly in these, the Catholic principles are coming to play through this whole mm-hmm. crisis when you when you look at It, it is that you, you look at the news, you read the paper, you see everything else. People are coming up with creative and innovative ways to help each other to get through this because they know that by ourselves, we will not survive, but together we can get through this. And, you know, every day I see a video clip or something else on Instagram or Facebook or wherever, somebody may send it to me, uh, of somebody being very unique, uh, in how they're allowing people to express the human desire to be together (laughs) and to help each other. Right. And, um, and, and I think that's what's going to bring us through all of this. And I think more so than ever, people are, are also starting to realize how superficial life was in the beginning of all mm-hmm. of this. Uh, and they're starting to see that life has a greater meaning. And coming through all of this, the graces that God is going to pour through all of us when this is over is going to be overwhelming.
0: Well, so that's a great segue to something you mentioned beforehand you wanted to talk about. What are some of the good things that you see coming out of this pandemic? Well, I think some
2: of the good things is that we're going to see coming out of this one we are already seeing. Uh, the telemedicine uh, is a big component, especially for, uh, you know, Chris, you and I doing NAPR technology, we see patients from uh, different states. Before you had to bring them in and see them, you couldn't do it through telemedicine now uh, with some of the suspensions, and I think this is going to, this is part of it that's going to say we can see patients from all 50 states, really. And so people are going to have greater, asp- they're going to have greater access to Catholic health care uh, providers, especially CMA members. I also think we're going to see more efficient meetings because people don't like being on Zoom. Uh, but uh, we're going to, we're, what you're seeing is, is we're seeing what's really necessary and useful to getting medicine done. So we're, we're increasing the efficiencies within the healthcare system, which hopefully over the future will reduce costs.
0: Are you seeing that in your hospital, Mike, that meetings are shorter? Oh, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, especially when it's on the phone and people, you can, you know... We've had a meeting every day for six weeks on COVID and women's health. Uh, oh, no. And uh, I, I, I would get off of these calls and I, I would say to my wife, if I hear another question about whether we're going to use this mask or that mask, I'm going j- <laughs> to, there's not enough duct tape to keep my head together. Um, you know, and so what I think people are realizing is you need to make these meetings short and important. Um, I, I think some of the other uh, benefits that are going to come out of this is, you know, is just general hygiene. People are going to be more conscious about washing their hands, uh, making sure surfaces are clean. I think we're going to see some innovations in how we clean, especially with UV lights. My son and I were talking about, you know, hard surface cleaning with UV drones and robots that come into your businesses and clean the hard surfaces. Um, you know, so we're going to see a lot of innovation come out of this. And it's going to be, you know, how many people have seen the COVID key? You know, it's uh, it's a key that's made out of brass that you hold in your hand. Uh, And it looks like a key, but you can use it to open doors. You can use it to touch the uh, buttons on a checkout machine at a a grocery store. I think every time I go into the the grocery store and I'm having to touch the screens to put in my stuff or put in my pen, somebody else has been there touching it. So they've created this COVID key made right here in Columbus, Ohio. That's a great innovation, but you can use it to open the door. You can use it to to do a number of different things, Uh, you know, and uh, so you don't have to touch anything. It's just the limitations of our human mind that uh, are going to stop us uh, from what we can learn. But it's out of a desire to keep everybody safe that these are coming about.
0: Well, I've got two obstetricians on Zoom with me now, so I thought I would milk that great wisdom there. Because you are
1: one lucky man. You're thinking I, I am. Blessed
0: yeah. am I among obstetricians. So, <laughs> Mike, you work in a hospital overseeing doctors who deliver babies, and you deliver babies. How has COVID affected the work of delivering babies in your hospital system?
2: Well, praise be God, we haven't had a single case yet. But what it, what I actually like, so I tell this story quite frequently. Six weeks ago, if you had walked into a, a delivery, the doctor would have been in a gown and gloves, would have had no face shield and no uh, mask on, uh, and walked in and, and did the delivery. Um, I think it's taught our physicians that they need to be more conscious of the uh, ability to spread disease through body fluids. And so now everybody is taking on the role of making sure that you have adequate personal protective equipment on for every delivery, okay, and making sure that is there. I think, two, it's opened up communication between our nursing staff and our physician staff on how we're going to interact in these certain situations. So it's led to a lot more modeling and role-playing uh, to help uh, turn critical situations into positive outcomes because we're, we're rehearsing these situations <laughs> and, and people are becoming more knowledgeable. Uh, three, uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's really had to make everyone more aware of what the current trends and data is with regards to a specific illness regarding COVID because you know early on everything was changing so fast uh and 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 everything was uh new and, and so you had to figure out a way to react to it but you had to react to it out of out of knowledge and not out of fear because fear led to misutilization of resources uh, facts it kept you within your uh your ability to respond in a healthy way and so you know, and then I think the other thing is it's done is is, is it's opened up telemedicine to the obstetrical population um, and making us realize that not every visit is going to be necessary. And uh, finally, with that comes the, the ability with some of our underserved uh, uh, patients who can't always get somewhere easily because uh, they have to take a bus or find a ride or get a cab or something like that. By doing telemedicine, there's some new studies that have come out that have shown that we can improve the outcomes you know, with high-risk management, such as hypertension, diabetes, uh, by having more frequent phone interviews and phone visits with them. So that's really opening up our ability to care for these complex and, and patients with need.
0: Chris, does that fit with what you're seeing
1: Yeah, exactly. I I would agree with all of those points Mike made. Uh, I I was just thinking as I listened to you, um, there is a funny sense in the delivery units and labor and delivery units in the hospital because it is normally just sort of dripping in happiness. Uh, And and that that happiness is there, but it's literally masked. Um, And so it's hard to see and it takes on a sense of anonymity almost because everyone has their face covered and and even even with the masks on people are standing away from each other and they're not congregating in groups and talking as much i think that's a little on the negative side that we'll see some of that return to normalcy over time but i don't think we'll be unchanged by this even when the pandemic is over i think one thing that i've seen is um it has always been a problem for a hospital system to differentiate between sick and well in the baby business, uh, and sometimes we haven't we haven't always done well at that. Um, and it's it's even more difficult now because in the pandemic times, everyone is sick or everyone is thought to be sick, and we have to think those ways. And it's going to be hard for us to go back to differentiating this is a healthy young woman having a baby as she's designed to do, as opposed to thinking her as a carrier of COVID. Um, it, it's going to be tough for us to to move move through this. I, I think we'll all be changed uh, yeah. over time.
0: Mike, <laughs> what do you think is important for listeners to know about pregnancy, obstetrics, and nursing in the age of COVID?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is be smart and wear your PPE. You know, but still, like like Chris said, we can't treat everybody as if they're disease. We have to treat them uh, for who they are and what they are. And that is a pregnant woman in need of our help and assistance to overcome the fears and anxieties that they have regarding what's going on with them and their babies. And so, you know, that that's probably the most important thing. We, we're putting up barriers, but we've got to we've got to work through those barriers to provide high quality care.
0: Chris, you had an experience recently that was new for you with a patient.
1: Oh, we did. Uh, You know, uh, one of the wonderful things about practicing obstetrics, as Mike and I do, is almost everybody's happy and healthy, and the story almost always has a a beautiful punctuation at the end. Recently, we had a patient, a young woman, 24 uh, and pregnant, and had tested positive at a local walk-in facility, uh, but she wasn't very sick. But within just a couple of days of testing positive, her husband is on the phone with us. Uh, and they live in rural Indiana, and he's trying to do his best to describe how she seems, and she doesn't seem well. And just in the course of a couple of phone calls through the course of a day, she went from feeling a little ill to him saying, she can't answer my questions. It seems like she's having trouble breathing. Uh, And then that very night, she got admitted to one of the tertiary facilities and was intubated, placed on a ventilator. Uh, And that all happened within the course of really about a day and a half. Uh, and it was a real sobering example of how uh, devastating this condition can be, even to young, healthy people that don't fit you know, the, the model. Uh, it's not as though those people can't be affected. They just usually aren't affected. Uh, but it was very sobering to see how quickly someone uh, could get that what sick.
0: What is the latest information, Mike, on whether or not being pregnant is a risk factor for acquiring COVID or having a more um, severe case of COVID?
2: Well, we always think pregnancy, with regards to infectious disease, you're going to be at a higher risk than most because of the changes in the immune system, but also in this case with changes in the respiratory system. What we're finding is that the prevalence of the disease is very much the same as it is in the general population. What uh, becomes a concern is that it's almost the same as what we saw with the Uh, SARS virus, is that uh, there are some growth restriction problems and a higher risk of preterm labor, preterm delivery uh, with these patients. Uh, And in the first trimester, there is some consideration that there may be a higher risk for miscarriage if you're exposed during that time. But for the most part, if they're not acutely sick at the time of delivery, uh, they will do very well. Um, There's no, uh, we don't have any evidence of birth defects associated with this virus. Uh, it's mainly um, that if they do get sick, they, like Chris said, they may get sick faster, uh, and it may take them a little bit longer to recover than a normal patient would, but for the most part, they, they can come out very healthy.
0: Mike, you're an administrator, or you have a leadership role in the hospital system. How has your hospital system been affected by covid you know, you said well, people are taking pay cuts. We, are, we already mentioned, we
2: already mentioned the, uh, the financial impact of our hospital. Um, we're at about 35 to 45% capacity.
0: And where uh, do you usually operate?
2: We're probably, our, the hospital that I'm mainly in is operating probably around 80% capacity. Um, so we have uh, empty wards uh, in our hospital. Uh, And, you know, uh, residents are no longer, you know, residents in other areas such as family medicine and surgery are are pretty much have nothing going on. We're not doing elective surgeries. And so for me to get a surgeon to come in on a case that took 15 minutes because they're not downstairs, they're out in their office. Um, But, you know, hospitals are basically down to the two things that they have to do. And that's the intensive care unit emergency room and obstetrics. Uh, and most of the other floors are not even open or have limited number of patients that would normally be there. And so, uh, it's almost, it's kind of bizarre. I said this the other day, I can't wait to the day when I look outside my hospital and see a full parking lot and I have a traffic jam to get to work. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest impacts also that, that we're seeing is the impact on the patients because of the lack of visitors you know, uh, you're not, if you're just in a general ward, you're allowed no visitors Uh, on the obstetric floor. You're allowed one visitor and that visitor has to stay with you at all times. And if they leave the room, they have to wear a mask and they can't go in and out of the hospital. Uh, So uh, that's really a, uh, an impact on, on our uh, patients, but that, that hurts the areas of the, you know, the, the ancillary stuff, the gift shops, uh, the coffee shops, the, the, yeah. th- the dining rooms, and everything else are taking a big financial hit, also, just like others. They're, they're small businesses that are basically closed because of this. So,
1: Mike, on the clinical side, in your practice and the practices that you're involved with, are you seeing, do you think, an increased incidence of postpartum mood disorders, postpartum depression, and the like because of the sense of isolation?
2: Um, I don't know that that we are because I'm I'm not in the clinic a lot myself personally, but the other th- the thing about that too is we're not seeing them because they're not coming in. Right. Um, we're trying to do a lot of that through telemedicine and uh, uh, FaceTime and and the things that are available to us to follow up on patients that we know have an underlying psychological disorder, uh, but those others who are not who may be at risk for postpartum depression. Uh, we're not getting access to uh, because they're not coming in for their visits for six weeks. We used to do mood checks on people in the, in the clinics. Now we can do some of those by FaceTime, but they're not coming in. Sure. I think, I think one of the things you, we talked about now or later is that um, there's a fear to come to the hospital, you know? And so the, the volume of patients that we're seeing in our outpatient clinics are, are down uh, mm-hmm. and our no show rates have been much higher uh, because of that fear.
1: You know, I think something our listeners would would agree with that they may be experiencing is um, mom and dad go home from the hospital with their baby. And what used to be very common, they would be bombarded with visitors, well-meaning visitors, bringing food and gifts and good cheer, uh, particularly their elderly parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now that's really tough. Patients are asking me every day, can my parents come over? And it, it's a hard discussion to say, you know, for your parents' sake, you shouldn't let them come over. You've just spent two or three days in the hospital. But that's a very difficult way to think. It's not intuitive at all.
2: Right. But if you think about it, the hospital may be the safest place to be right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's the only place you're going to see where everybody's wearing a mask. The, the cleaning and the cleaning solutions that they are doing is, is way above and beyond. Uh, and the hand washing, the hand cleaning, everything else that we're doing uh, with every patient encounter and the, and the desire to keep, you know, screening for COVID patients before they even make it to your floor. So in a way, it, it's probably the best place to be. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good Mike, point.
0: I have a quote for you from uh, uh, the Orange County, California public health officer who said, quote, our healthcare system is here to help you. And she was responding to a report about the the precipitous drop in patients with heart attack and stroke symptoms showing up at hospitals. But I wonder if, in fact, people heard more than her message where they maybe hearing our healthcare system is here to help you. If you have coronavirus, all others stay home. What do you think about that, Mike?
2: No, it, you know, I hadn't thought about that till, till you posted that question, Tom. And, and I did hear uh, the, a news story about that uh, the other day. And the message that was out was, uh, please stay home. And it right. came from all the pictures that you said, see at the hospital. And, and it was, please stay home so we can help you. Well, who are you going to help <laughs> if you're telling everybody to stay home? And, and people took this, in, I think, two ways. One, if I go to the hospital, I'm going to get coronavirus. But two, if I go to the hospital because I'm not feeling well or having a problem, um, I'm going to be burdening them with a patient who they they don't think is worthy of being cared for because they don't have COVID, mm-hmm. right? And, and so they they thought they were being a burden on the, the system if they went in with their complaints. And uh, so I think the message was good to stay home with some of the minor complaints. And I think Chris and I can both attest that a lot of times on, on labor and delivery with triage units, you get a lot of people who come in with very mild and, and, symptoms and complaints, but it's mainly fear that they're coming in with, uh, and they just need to have that alleviated, or there's some other social dynamic that's going on. But I think this doctor is very correct, in that, you know, seeing that decline, people are saying, well, I can't go in for those two reasons. I'm either going to get it, or I'm going to be a burden on them.
0: And they're just looking for things to do in the hospital. They want to help you. (laughs) We want to help you in our practices. Absolutely. If you were governor, you're not, but if you were governor, um, when and how would you open up hospitals and medical care based on what you're seeing?
2: Well, I think we need to open up. I'm glad I'm not the governor. The governor of Ohio has done a wonderful job. I want to say that first and foremost. Um, And I think his greatest challenge to being governor again is our state medical director. But um, the... I think where we need to open up first and foremost is we need to get our outpatient facilities up and running again. So our screening procedures and uh, uh, outpatient labs, those things need to be open. I think we need to start opening up to same-day surgery uh, and uh, accomplishing those. And then finally, we'll we'll bring in the, the cases that last a, bit of, a little bit longer. But we need to get the message out again that if you're sick and you need medical care, don't be afraid to come to the hospital. You know, we're, we're through that part. Um, and, uh, you know, I still think that we're going to use, you know, masks and and social distancing and, and all this other stuff for some time in the future. But I think starting with the outpatient facilities where we can have a little bit of control on the flow of patients and the number of patients who are in an area at one time and separating them and using proper, uh, PPE and techniques would be first and foremost, Outpatient surgery needs the elective outpatient surgeries need to start back up in several reasons. One, doctors need to be able to make a living. If we don't give some relief to the doctors soon, they're not going to be in practice much longer. And two, the hospitals need that revenue to come in to sustain the uh, the activities that help to treat the patients with COVID. You know, we, we need those revenues to help keep our doors open. And I think we can start opening up the gift shops and and we need to do some hygienic changes with our uh, cafeterias. That was necessary. Anyways, you know, multiple people reaching into a salad bowl, just, you know, one day was not good in, in and of itself. So I think those are good, but I, I think those are the areas. And then finally, you know, after that's done, let's start bringing back the medical students and, and some of the residents back into, to, to start learning again. I think yes. the medical students missed out on a great deal by being sent home for yes. fear of exposure to COVID, you know, uh, and we need to get them back in. Chris,
1: what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Uh, it, I think this has dealt a huge blow to the learners, to your your last point. Uh, and if you've been in a hospital before the pandemic and paid attention, it's amazing how many learners there are, from uh, nursing technicians, to phlebotomists, to nurses, and physical therapists, and a and the lot. And they've taken a a big hit uh, during this, as you said. And it could have been so positive for them, but I think out of fear, uh, we limited their exposure. Uh, But I I agree with you. I'm worried this week, uh, we're going to start reopening a bit. And uh, I'm worried about, you know, we don't have necessarily the administrative management expertise to do this. It's easy to turn it off and it's easy to turn it on, but controlling the volume, it may be, May prove to be real challenging across the country, and we'll have to see how it goes. I,
2: I agree, and I think I think I'm hoping that during this time, people were working on uh, contingencies about reopening and how they were going to do that on a scale up uh, model. And, and to to a final point on all this is, you know, yes, we're going to see an increased number of COVID cases after we start opening things up. It's necessary that we see those cases to start to develop some of that herd immunity that you've talked about on your show before, and realize that this is not going to kill you, but you you you're not likely to get it from the hospital. One of my colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic they had over 118 people test positive, and they found that when they traced every one of them, they were all acquired from community sources, Uh not within the hospital, and so uh, they're more likely to get it out in the community, and so doing universal testing or screening of patients before they come in for COVID virus. I'm not sure that's absolutely necessary if we're we're taking proper PPE precautions and we're cleaning properly after the procedures.
0: As we wrap up uh, the interview, Mike, I'd like you to comment, why do you think the Catholic Medical Association is important for America?
2: Well, I think it's the reason that it's important for America is that it brings a different uh, viewpoint to medicine that's that's been lacking for years um it, it was well not so you shouldn't say lacking was lost it, we had it earlier earlier on in you know the 30s 40s 50s early 60s when we got it's getting into uh, material relativism and uh, more secular ethos we kind of lost that uh, catholic principles uh, that we talked about before uh, the dignity of the human person the common good Um, and subsidiarity and solidarity. And I think the Catholic Medical Association bringing those principles into the idea of healthcare uh, will help to bring back uh, uh, a a more, um, how do I want to say, this loving atmosphere to healthcare. You know, at the the basis of all this is God, and God is love. And so when you bring that back in, I think you'll see, greater respect for the healthcare industry, a greater relationship between doctors and their patients, uh, and a willingness to serve each other uh, going forward. And I think the second reason it needs it is the camaraderie that we see within the medical Catholic Medical Association, that ability to pick each other up, the ability to support each other in difficult times such as this, to be able to talk somebody down, or, or or to to bounce ideas off of somebody that you developed a close relationship to, knowing that they're going to pray with you also at the end of that, uh, is very very important. And that that type of collegial uh, relationship. Is necessary in medicine where burnout is very high, and I think burnout is just going to get worse uh, from this COVID uh, crisis. That when you have a faith-based approach to why you're practicing medicine, burnout can be easier to overcome because you know that your help is in the Lord, and the Lord will provide you with everything that you need to go through this. It won't be easy, but you'll come out on the other end. And the Catholic Medical Association has the ability to provide that leadership going forward.
1: Amen. Mike, talk to the listeners briefly about who can join the CMA. We're all physicians, but it's more than just a physician organization. Right. Uh,
2: the organization is made up of Catholic health care professionals uh, and workers. Um, anybody can join as an affiliate member. You can join as a nurse. You can join as a dentist. You can join as a lawyer. Uh, several of my friends who are lawyers are uh, affiliate member. Priests can join. Religious can join.
1: Even dermatologists um, can join. <laughs> dermatologists.
0: <laughs> There's a special exemption for that, yes. <laughs> In fact, we love it when they
2: join because we give them more responsibility. <laughs>
0: But, you know, it, it
2: truly is open to anybody who is Catholic and wishes to learn more about their faith and applying the, the, the principles of the Catholic uh, faith to the practice uh, of medicine, the practice in the science of medicine, so we can have researchers, uh, you know, medical students, residents, uh, all of those people are welcome, and we'd love to have you be a part of it.
0: How can our listeners help us to grow? What could they do to stimulate our growth?
2: Uh, if, you, if you're, if you're a, a, a patient and you're seeing a doctor who you know is Catholic, ask them if they're a member of the Catholic Medical Association. If they're not, why not? Uh, and if they tell you they don't know about the Catholic Medical Association, give them our information. Tell them to go to www.cathmed.org uh, and they can learn more. Uh, also encourage them to look for local guilds uh, in your area. Uh Two, they can, they can promote the Dr. Doctor, doctor show. They can spread it to everybody uh, who's out there uh, and listen to the fine quality content that you guys, <laughs> I, mean, this, I mean, we laugh by this time because we're friends, but you're, the content that you're putting out there is top notch. Um, and it's, it's some of the best and, and clearest uh, and most up-to-date information on the COVID virus that, that I've, I've listened to. Um, and it's relevant and it adds that, that religious piece to it. So talking about the doctor, doctor show, um, but you know, pray for your doctors and pray for your healthcare workers and anybody who's out there, um, and, uh, pray that they, they won, um, Stay healthy through all of this, that too, they stay sane through all of this because we know that mental health is going to be a big issue in many healthcare workers when this is all over, uh, either due to PTSD or the, the struggles that people have been going through. Uh, and don't be afraid to do something nice for people in healthcare right now. They really need <laughs> your help and support. So,
0: um, you Mike, know, do you have any parting comments? Those were all great and greatly appreciated.
2: No, you know I now is a great time to you know to kind of wrap it up. It is a great time to be a Catholic physician, and i'm very humbled yet proud to be the leader of the organization at this time um, Some of the you know it's but I, I am at the same time i'm not overwhelmed because I know the Holy Spirit is guiding this organization as it has uh, throughout its existence, and I have the support of great members like you and Chris. And other members of the board to help us make difficult decisions that we need to make as an organization uh, now. Uh, But remember, Jesus is the divine physician and the divine healer, and that all of our actions are based on His uh, graces given to us through the Holy Spirit. And that as much as we want to try to control everything that as we can through this whole crisis, we do have to trust in Him, and and uh, and we will come through this stronger on the end.
0: Amen. Mike Parker, thank you so much for being a guest today on Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association.
1: If you enjoyed this show, please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, especially a healthcare worker, and invite them to listen to their favorite pod on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion.
0: Phenography.
1: Embryonic stem cell research.
0: Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.